Welcome to the Blister Podcast, a program dedicated to interesting people, the great outdoors, and a bunch of other stuff we like. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Rob Copalillo is an IFMGA and AMGA certified mountain guide who grew up in the Denver, Colorado area, but currently lives in Chamonix, France. Rob is also the author of the Mountain Guide Manual, which is one of the official textbooks of the AMGA, and he is the author of the forthcoming book, The Ski Guide Manual. So the timing was good to talk to Rob about his background and how he got into guiding, the current state of backcountry and avalanche education, his take on the pros and cons of avalanche airbag packs, and we get into the fundamental question of the most effective way to travel in the backcountry. Or put otherwise, we get into the hotly debated topic of skin track angles. So in other words, we cover a lot of interesting ground in this episode. And with that, here we go. Well, Rob, how are you today and where are you today? Uh, I am on the tail end of international jet lag. So if I <laughs> nod off, you're just going to have to yell into the microphone. No, um, I am. I think I'm over it. I just got back from Canada a few days ago and uh, we, my family and I, we moved to Chamonix, France. So when I say I got back, uh, I flew from well, really Spokane, Washington, and uh, I got back to Chamonix, France on, uh, when was that? To, uh, Monday afternoon. And, uh, and here we are. So like it's Friday, I think I'm over the jet lag, but if I say something goofy, I'm going to blame it on that. So here we are. <laughs> well, you and I have a lot of ground to cover today, and I'm already like thinking this could be, you know, sort of a 10 part conversation. So I am going to do my best to to kind of keep us moving. Um, and <laughs> even your last name could be kind of a hour long conversation, I think, in its, in its own right. It's a very cosmopolitan heritage. I think <laughs> you you come from. Um, maybe we should actually start there with the name Copalillo. Yeah, Copalillo, that is it. Excellent <laughs> pronunciation. Um, and so, you know, it's funny you say it's cosmopolitan. I think to Americans, it sounds international and kind of fancy. But for an Italian, my dad is from a little village in the south of Italy that would be like from a poor part of Appalachia or something. R really beautiful, but um, it, it's sort of regarded as sort of a little bit of a backwater and it's a poor part of Italy and things like that. So my grandfather was born in Argentina and he was one of five brothers. And I think three of the brothers stayed. So I have all these cousins sprinkled through Argentina and Southern Brazil now. And, um, and then my, uh, he went back to Italy and my dad was born in this little, uh, it's a, the region is called Calabria. And then he, my dad came to the States in 1929. So, um, yeah, it sounds cosmopolitan, but it's actually kind of lowbrow if you tell Italians. So anyway, take that for what it will. And so where were you born? Where did you grow up? Uh, so my old man was a college professor, and my mom was a social worker, and she quit working once. Uh, my sister was born in Chicago, 
And then we moved to Ann Arbor, Michigan. My old man was at the University of Michigan, and I'm a tw- I'm a twin. So when my brother and I showed up, my mom quit working for a long time and chased us around. So we were in um, Ann Arbor for just a year and then Nashville, Tennessee for five years. And then we came to Denver, Colorado in 76. And um, so I grew up mostly south of Denver, like the southern burbs. And, you know, we grew up skiing back when skiing was cheap and you could drive up and down I-70 and all that. And, uh, and then we started rock climbing in high school. Both my brother and I were, were doing it together. And, um, you know, but we were riding bikes all over South Denver and just being little hellions. And then I finished college in Boulder. And so, you know, all the way through, I had really nice access to the mountains. So it was easy to climb and ski and hike and do all that kind of stuff. So you were at CU Boulder, is that right? Yeah, I, yeah, I finished there. I went one year at UC Santa Barbara and then came back and finished in uh, in Boulder and loved both places. But, you know, UCSB was even back then was spendy out of state. And my old man was, you know, footing the bill. My mom and dad were putting two of us through college at the same time. So um, we I came back and finished at uh, CU Boulder and had got a degree in environmental conservation and was able to rock climb and and uh, ski through college, and then I started racing bikes. I blew a bunch of years racing road bikes, and um, and did that. But you know, Boulder was a great place to go to school, just for the school, but also the access and and uh, living in a nice place. So, when did you first start thinking about guiding? You know, it, that's a funny story because I um, I was on a plane coming back from Costa Rica right after college. I went down there for a month and just roamed around. And I just happened to sit next to this gent on the plane, and we got to talking, coming back from uh, uh, San Jose to, to uh, Colorado. And we were chatting away, and he's this nice little dude with an accent. And turns out he was from Switzerland originally. His name was Jean Paviard, and he was a, a, a full mountain guide living in Crested Butte. And we chatted away, and he told me about his work. I said, oh, that sounds cool. And uh, he wrote down, I still have this notebook, he wrote down his name and number in this notebook. And, um, and I kind of forgot about it. I got into racing bikes and I spent eight or nine years, 10 years racing bikes. And right as I quit racing bikes, I sort of knew this mountain guiding thing was out there. And, um, and I ended up meeting another mountain guide who was looking for apprentices and whatnot. So I apprenticed with him for a couple of years and then started doing my guiding courses in 2006. And then I limped my way through them and finished in 2014 and, um, you know, but in the States, it's a little more forgiving. You can guide while you're doing your training and, um, it's a little more locked down over here, but in Europe, but, uh, so anyway, I started apprenticing with this gent Marcus back in like 2003 or so, and then started doing guide courses in, I guess, winter of 06, seven, and then finished in 14. So I was guiding that a bunch of that time. And all along the way, I had a career as a freelance writer. So I was writing as well. And so somehow within all that, I didn't starve to death. And uh, here we are. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about the writing. And I, and I want to focus a bit on the books you've put out. So let's just do this in order. And we'll, we'll, we'll spend more time on each subsequent book here. But let's talk about your first book. I think I have this right. This was Holy Spokes. That's exactly right. Yeah, that was it. Okay. What was up with Holy Spokes? Well, you know, I had made, uh, you know, a living writing about cycling largely um, 
all through my twenties and into my thirties. And so I, you know, I had covered everything from BMX national championships in Tulsa, Oklahoma to going to the tour de France and following it start to finish. And, um, so I had a good little niche going and I had, I had race bikes at a decent level for an amateur, but I was not, not good enough to be a pro, but I knew all the pros from training and racing with them and, you know, getting my teeth kicked in. So this publisher kind of heard about me and, connected with me through a, a colleague and a mutual friend and you know they wanted this little sort of um very broad general book on how to get into cycling and so I wrote that and in the end uh let's just say the editing wasn't what I was hoping for and so the book didn't quite turn out the way I wanted but you know it was a cool little title it was a good first little book and so that was that and uh, I don't know how many people read that thing, you know, six or eight at least. <laughs> and uh, yeah. And um, so that, you know, then it was nice because I had a book under my belt and that really, I kept writing magazine articles and online stuff and did some copywriting as well. And so it flowed right into the next book, which is the Mountain Guide Manual, which I wrote, co-authored with a mentor of mine, Mark Chauvin, who's based in North Conway. And that was a, a sort of a, a high-end how-to book for rock and alpine climbers, um, which is now one of the texts that the American Mountain Guides Association uses for their guiding curriculum. And really, it's my mentor's book. I just did the writing. Um, and, uh, you know, he's a mountain guide. He's in his early 60s now. He's been a guide for 40-plus years and just a really great educator and a real innovator uh, when it comes to technical systems and stuff. So, you know, it really relied on a lot of his and other mountain guides uh, innovations over the last, let's say, 25 years and tried to just introduce some of those in a way that maybe lay people or beginning mountain guides could use. And so that came out in 2017. And, um, you know, as soon as I got over the PTSD of that book, then, uh, I went on and uh, sold a, a ski version of that book. That book was called The Mountain Guide Manual. And so the Ski Guide Manual I literally turned into the publishers a month ago, and it's supposed to be out this coming November, I think. So we're going to spend the bulk of our time, I think, talking about issues that are very near and dear to your latest book, The Ski Guide Manual. But before we get there, how do you think about the relationship between the previous book the mountain guide manual and the ski guide manual, like how much overlap or how, how much do you see those as kind of companion books? Um, I mean, for a mountain guide, you know, those are the three main disciplines we work in rock, alpine and ski. Right. And so when Mark and I got going on the, on the mountain guide manual, we originally had this completely, uh, naive, uh, what would you say, overly ambitious, um, ridiculous idea that we were going to put some skiing in the mountain guide manual. And we started outlining and writing and we, it, within weeks we told the publisher like, Hey, there's no way we can do skiing. And that book I think was, Oh, a hundred and, uh, what was it? 140,000 words and 250 photos. And that was just rock and alpine. So, you know, we knew early on that that thing was not going to, uh, cover skiing. And, and in there, there's a bunch of technical systems and a bunch of how-to stuff, which is exactly what the ski guide manual has. Um, but there's in, for whatever reason, in the mountain guide manual, we didn't really dive into decision-making and mindset nearly as much as the ski community has. And which is a shame because Chauvin's a really thoughtful, uh, well-read, smart guy. And he's fun to bounce ideas off of and argue about stuff and come up with things. 
Um, and so he and I talked about doing a decision making book. I don't know, maybe that would happen someday, but it just didn't happen in the mountain guide manual. And we were just so into the weeds with crevasse rescue and rock systems and stuff like that. Um, that the ski guide manual is a, you know, it's a how to book just like the mountain guide manual, but there's a bunch more on like mindset and teamwork and decision making and debriefing and stuff like that. All of which can be easily adapted to, I mean, rock or alpine climbing for sure, but anything really kayaking, um, you know, anything where you're operating in a tricky environment where you're making high stakes decisions. I think most of that stuff is fairly applicable. And indeed the avalanche folks, uh, you know, in my experience, I, I got a lot of this from Tom Murphy and some of those folks, um, at Airy, uh, they really drew on, well, let's say they stole. Okay. That's what I did for the ski guide manual, stole a bunch of great ideas from the aviation medicine, um, nuclear industries, even anything where you're making big decisions in a potentially risky environment. And so, you know, I tried to distill a bunch of that in the ski guide manual that, and it didn't really make it in the mountain guide manual. Um, for better, or for worse, we'll find out here when you guys all read it. If it's, you know, through a 300 page ambient pill, you know, I didn't do my job. So I think that's a really interesting element that somehow I'm a, I feel again, as is often the case with me, like feel kind of silly that, when you started talking about, as we were talking a bit earlier, I've tended to think of decision-making in the mountains as this very specific and niche type of thing. And you started talking about, you know, a bit earlier, like drawing from aviation and medicine and folks dealing with nuclear reactors and things like that. And it's like, well, that just makes a ton of sense. And I really like the way that you kind of just put that. It's like anybody working in a team in tricky conditions or in a tricky or difficult environment. And that's it in a nutshell, right? Like that's the base level. And now whether we're talking about traveling in the mountains or flying a plane, it's still that same general formulation that you that you just articulated well. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I think that's some of, you know, decision-making is really hot right now. And Annie Duke has a book out called Thinking in Bets. And Michael Mobison has done some really cool uh, writing. He's got a book called The Success Equation. Um, you know, in the Daniel Kahneman book and Checklist Manifesto, things like that. It's really hip right now. There's a great book, too, called uh, How We Decide by Jonah Lehrer. Um, but, and I think the insight really, whether it's from the Pentagon and the military guys or aviation or medicine or mountain guide, the insight from some of those industries that have, you know, 70, 80, a hundred years of experience with this is there are certain practices and, uh, processes you can implement in these trickier environments or what somebody you call a wicked environment or a low validity environment, um, that can really cut down on errors or catch errors earlier and, you know, mitigate hazard, things like that. And so that's really where Tom Murphy and Howie Schwartz and, um, Colin Zacharias and, uh, you know, uh, Lynn Wolf and some of these people that are working in the avalanche industry, they were really smart to go outside. I mean, the avalanche industry, obviously it's so small that nobody's got the cash to be, you know, hiring outside, uh, psychologists and neuroscientists and things like that. But if you go look at what Boeing has done or you look at what the insurance industry has done, you know, there's ample research out there about 
how do you take a really tricky um, pastime or industrial process or whatever it is, and how do you try to cut down on human error and pro- procedural error and things like that? And so, you know, Murph and these guys brought it into Aerie, and I'm sure the AAI guys are doing it. I know Joe Stock is doing it up in Anchorage for the Alaska Guides Collective. And so there's a ton of smart people working on this stuff. And so having been exposed to those folks, I just tried to steal as much of it as I could, give them some credit in the book and synthesize it into something we could use as, as uh, climbers and skiers and things like that. So as you said, and you're certainly right, the decision-making and mindset stuff has been very hot, especially in kind of backcountry ski circles and education. If we think about sort of the other side of that spectrum or other end of that spectrum, I don't know if I'm making up a false spectrum here, but um, kind of snow science, right? And looking at snowpack and that type of thing, I guess I'm curious. I mean, I feel like it was just a few years ago where, you know, we would be sitting in our avi courses and reading chapters and discussing things like you know looking at snow crystals and evaluating those and what how do you think about this space we're in right now if going hardcore on snow science and the idea that that's what we really need to be educated on if we're going to be traveling in the backcountry versus on the other end of the spectrum the sort of being good at the decision-making stuff, do you think we'll continue to see a bit of a de-emphasis on snow science itself? How, how do you understand like our current situation and where we think things will continue to trend? Well, it, it, I think you're totally right. There's been a, some changing and a little bit of reprioritization or however you want to look at it. Part of the problem uh, down in the States was avalanche uh, curriculum was uh, it was all bundled up so everybody did the same level one for the most part and then if you wanted to do a level two there was really no differentiation between a person who uh, maybe you know she's a orthopedic surgeon and loves skiing but she's never going to make a living at skiing or avalanche forecasting right she just wants to get better doing hut trips and traveling right well, she might be in the room with some, you know, 24-year-old kid or better, you know, my nephew's 20, he wants to be a mountain guide. She could be in the room with that little punk and um, he wants to be a mountain guide. So he's like into the snow science and he wants to really learn and, you know, really perfect his skills and do all this. And, um, you know, so my nephew's goals and this fictitious surgeon's goals would be really different, but in the same classroom. So now you've got poor instructor in front of those two, and he's trying to teach uh, my nephew, um, you know, all the proper notation and how to do a full snow profile with temperatures and the whole thing. But then on the same page, he's got this woman over there who's like, well, I don't need to know that stuff. I just want to be able to go ski in Jackson or Banff or Revelstoke and learn how to figure out a seasonal snowpack history and make better decisions and then come back safe and get back to my life, you know, being a surgeon and a, and a badass in the operating room, right? So those are really different students and they're different goals, right? So the Canadians have done this for longer than we have where they uh, split their curriculum in two. There's a recreational track and a pro track. And that's what, um, you know, we've done down here in the States now. 
And so everybody does the same level one. And then if you want to be a pro, you go off and you do a pro one and a pro two and you kind of start your career. That just gets you into the, that gets you in the room to start being a, a more serious practitioner. And as a recreationalist, you can do the, the level one and then you can go do a level two, which is much more about coached application of these skills and perfecting some of them. Um, and so you really have a better chance to have similar students in the room and, and coach to them, right? So in terms of the snow science thing, I think, um, you know, in the book, I talk about uh, Dale Atkins's paper that, I, if memory serves, he presented at 2000, in 2000 at the International Snow Science Workshop. And he went through a, 10 years of data um, in Colorado and looked at uh, the reasons, quote unquote, for how accidents happened. And more than 90% of the time, they were attributable to human factors, all these dumb things that we trick ourselves into doing, right? Whether we're buying a car or going skiing or whatever it is, you know, we make stupid mistakes. And so, you know, he wrote a, a really interesting paper and tried to identify some of the most common human factors. And then Ian McCammon around that time was identified some of these heuristics or mental shortcuts we take that in many ways service in everyday life, but for backcountry skiing or aviation or something, they often don't. And so really that touched off sort of a uh, soul searching within the community about what is going to keep recreational backcountry skiers safer, like looking at snow crystals and talking about temperature gradients or figuring out what are we prone, uh, what types of errors are we prone towards and how do we short circuit those through you know, nowadays it's a little jargony, but in the book I talk about pre-biasing ourselves before we even leave the trailhead and then de-biasing ourselves in the field and what these practices can be. And so that's, you know, I would say snow science is still out there. I just taught a level two in Canada with uh, Colin Zacharias for recreationalists. And we certainly talked about some snow science. Um, but we're also trying to put it in a much more balanced context where, um, you know, snow science and all of these things come in the context of trying to make smart decisions and if your decision-making process is flawed, then it's not going to matter what kind of snow science you have or who you're skiing with or whatever, you're headed for trouble. So I think there's, there's got to be a balance, and I think underpinning all that is uh, a solid team and some good decision-making and then trying to integrate all that stuff into a repeatable process that we can do weekend after weekend after weekend. And so that's, that's kind of where I see it right now, and my hunch is – It'll stay that way, and maybe you see little fluctuations in the, the snow science thing, but really for most people, snow science isn't what's going to keep you safe. It's reading the bulletin and reading terrain and learning how to minimize your exposure in that terrain on certain days and what kind of terrain you want to avoid. Do you feel like in terms of talking about flawed decision-making, I mean, anytime you're out in the backcountry whether by yourself or whether with a group, well, there's countless decisions, right? So there's a lot of opportunities to make flawed decisions. And so I, I guess I'm curious if you think there's either the most common flawed decision or just the one that you personally are like, man, people, could we do a better job of recognizing this and not repeating this particular flawed decision? Wow. Yeah, that's a 
Yeah, gosh, I could, you know, if we chatted the next seven nights in a row, I'd probably give you a different answer every night. But um, I would say one thing that professional operations, like if you look at the accident rates in Western Canada for the number of avalanche involvements or fatalities for mechanized uh, ski guiding in Western Canada, I mean, it is so, so, so low. It is amazing the job they're doing, getting these people, I mean, you know, more than 100,000 feet in a week of heli skiing. And, you know, there'll be, I don't know how many heli operations there are in Western Western Canada working in a winter. You know, there must be at least, oh God, 40. I don't know. Anyway, it's, it's, they have got it down to such a science. And I think one of the big innovations they had that came out of um, Roger Atkins, and I think uh, the gentleman's name is Thierry Cordon way back when, and Colin Zacharias, was this procedure every morning of having this guide meeting. And before you're out in the field looking at, you know, a thousand meter run of untracked, like, you know, blower pal, before you're ever out there, before the helicopter starts turning the blades, any of that stuff, you sit down and you have a meeting, you look at the information and everybody's involved and everybody gets to speak up. And, you know, the simplest thing I can say is they just red light terrain on the day, meaning they look at the, what the snow safety specialists are telling, telling them. So for most of us, that's the avalanche bulletin. And in Colorado, we have an awesome one. You know, the Northwest has a great one. There, I mean, there's really good ones all over the world. Um, you listen to what the experts are saying. And then you look at what the weather did overnight, how much snow's on the ground. And you go back to the terrain and you say, what terrain is not appropriate to ski today? And you red light that terrain. And then it's red lighted for the day. You cannot go into that terrain once you're out there. You can't go out there and say, oh, it's not as bad as we thought. Or, oh, I did the snowpack test and it says this. Or well, Johnny just skied it and nothing happened. Once you red light terrain, it's red lighter for the day. You can talk about it after, but you can't go into the field and change it. And that, that right there cuts down on a million different biases that you can trick yourself into skiing something once you're in the field. Because once you're in the field, right, all of us have, all of us share at least one bias, right? And that's what we want to ski below or snow under blue skies with friends, right? That's what we're doing. And so all of us are going to tilt towards making that decision. But if you've told yourself before, uh, I cannot ski slope X or slope Y on that day, and you know you're not going to ski it, that removes a bunch of that right there. So that would be one thing that, you know, I would try to, and it's in the book, you know, we try to argue that, that a guide meeting, quote unquote, can, can just be your teammates sitting around talking about, hey, you know, is today the day to really push it? given our team, given how we're feeling, um, given what the avalanche danger says, or is today a day to really dial it back? And I think if we look at the trend in the avalanche bulletin, we look at whether or not people are triggering avalanches, things like that, we have a pretty good idea. It's once we get in the field and we start seeing other people skiing lines, or we get a little competitive with the guys in the skin track behind us, or you know, we want to show off for somebody or whatever it is, all the dumb ways that we make stupid decisions. Um, you know, if we've decided we're not going to ski X, Y, or Z slope, we're way less likely to ski it. Write it down in your notebook and say, this terrain is open for the day, this terrain is closed for the day. And then that goes a long way to keeping you keeping you safe. That, that'd be one like really basic practice that people can pull out of professional ski operations, largely in Canada, but now, you know, Americans have adopted it. 
And then the other thing I think is confirmation bias. You know, once, once people have decided they want to ski something, and this is just like time and time and time again uh, reproduced in the experiments and the data, once you've made up your mind, your brain, whether you want to or not, whether you think you're immune to it or not, you begin ignoring disconfirming evidence and you begin over prioritizing confirming evidence and then you get into motivated reasoning and the whole thing but if you just know that confirmation bias is out there if your teammates know what your shortcomings are and you know what their shortcomings are and you've got a good culture in which you can call each other out and say like hey jonathan dude you're doing that thing again come on you're gonna get us killed and everybody can just swallow their pride for 10 minutes then you know those would go a long way towards preventing uh, accidents and incidents and things. Airbags, avi packs. I love it. Um, <laughs> another another hot topic, right? Yeah, for sure. And um, a bit of backcountry tech, maybe we'll call it, that also seems to be trending. Seems to me that. More avi packs are being sold, but I think it's always good. And we've been having a lot of these conversations kind of internally at Blister. Um, and so I'm very interested to, you know, get again, you as an experienced guy, just as another data point here, are we drinking the Kool-Aid too much when it comes to the benefit of airbags and avi packs? Is this in your view? Definitely a good development. Um, help us understand just your own thinking about avi packs and their utility and that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, it, it, the bottom line is it's a great innovation. Uh, they work much of the time, um, and they're getting lighter every year. And everybody's, you know, they like the race is on. Everybody's innovating and whatnot. I I own one for sure. I have the the Mammut one, and I managed to smuggle one of those little carbon bottles back from Europe. So I have one of those stashed in North America, and then I've got one over here. So that lights it up by a pound and a bit, and it's tiny and okay, whatever. You know, the Black Diamond uh, guys are now licensing that Scott technology, the capacitor one that is awesome for a you know a battery driven pack and whatnot. And um, uh, you know, they've got a fan or a a, a a dual bottle Scott system as well, and you know all these different things. So there's there's great options out there. Um, they're definitely effective. The gentleman who uh, developed and invented the two antenna beacon for BCA told me in an interview one time. He said between a transceiver and an avalanche pack, I would take the balloon pack. And uh, you know that's he, he's just making a point. Obviously, we're skiing with both a lot of the time. Um, the reality is some of the, some of the stats have been thrown around or maybe a little overhyped by manufacturers. Um, the flip side is, uh, you know, that there is a, a robust data set now that's coming out that, um, I think the Canadian researcher Pascal Hagley has done some of the better work on it. And it, you know, it looks like they greatly improve your chances of surviving an avalanche, whether that's doubling your chances, like some manufacturers have said, or, or even it's 50 or 40%, you know, that's a great improvement, right? Um, and the flip side of that might be, though, around terrain traps, it seems like the advantages are mostly negated. So rocks, trees, crevasses, you know, gullies, things like that. 
And on top of that, 20% of the time, people wearing an airbag pack involved in an avalanche don't deploy it for either, for a number of reasons, everything from they can't get to the trigger to the thing was uh, assembled incorrectly to the, you know, I saw a kid one time get avalanched out the bottom of the dragon tail, pulled his thing, nothing happened. And then we opened his pack and looked at it and the thing was at zero PSI. So we had a, a leaky bottle or something. Um, but there, you know, there are problems with them. Um, you know, and in Colorado, for example, where I used to live, uh, you know, tree lines, 11,000 feet were often skiing amongst trees. Like, and, um, you know, if you get strained through the trees or punched off a cliff or pushed into a gully, the bag is, you know, even inflated is not going to do much for you. And so you don't want to think it's a silver bullet. You don't want to let it change your behavior. That's critical. You cannot be, I had a guy in an avalanche course one time say, oh yeah, there's plenty of things I won't ski if, unless I'm wearing an airbag pack. And that's just, that's craziness. You just, you know, it's just, you can't turn it into this deal where, oh, well, it's going to improve my chances. And so I'm going to take this extra risk. I mean, you know, risk homeostasis and all this is well studied. You know, if we, people often take a, a, a safety technology and they don't use it to keep them safe. They use it just to bump up their risk profile to where it was prior to the, to the technology. And so, um, you know, airbag packs can be like that, but I think uh, a lot of people are wearing them and, uh, they're, they're, Many, many people have been saved in avalanches, and uh, they're a great idea. You know, and they're coming down now. I think my my Mammut one's only four and a half pounds or something. It's a couple pounds heavier than my other pack. So, you know, I use it quite a bit if I'm skiing amongst rocks and trees. Uh, maybe I don't use it that day and just take some weight off my back and my knees and hips and stuff. But if you got one, I'd say use it and don't get to just use it all the time. And, and uh, you know, hopefully it never comes to that. I don't know that I've got any great ideas how to do this or or maybe it's being done well enough right now or maybe the onus is just on each of us not to be stupid. But there is that thing, maybe, and see what you think of this, where, all right, I'm thinking about should I ski with an Avi pack or not? Should I have the balloon on my on my back? It does tend to maybe distract us a little bit from thinking about pinballing our way through rocks and trees or going flying off of a cliff, right? It's like we're kind of hand waving. Look at, look over here. Think about should I be having, you know, should I have a balloon on my back? And there, I don't know if that distracts us enough from just being mindful of the fact that blunt force trauma is often the cause of very serious injury or death. Yeah, I think you're totally on the right track. And that's why taking a ride in an avalanche is just a really bad idea, and particularly in a place like Colorado that has a shallow snowpack, a high tree line, you know, and, you know, you're often around rocks given how uh, shallow the snowpack is. And, and, you know, so you just, you cannot, you just can't risk taking a big ride in an avalanche. It's just not, it looks like around 40% of avalanche fatalities in Colorado are from trauma. So you're, you're dead regardless of asphyxiation. Maybe that number is slightly lower in other places, you know, with a, a lower tree line and, uh, you know, more above tree line or glacier skiing or whatever. But, um, you know, the point is it's, it's just, it's a bad idea. Even if, you know, you blow up a knee or your leg or whatever, uh, it's just, 
you know, I've never taken a ride in an avalanche and, you know, most of the guys I ski with have never taken a ride in an avalanche. And if you get, I don't know, you get around these folks that are sort of self described experts and, um, well, or sometimes they're experts or whatever you want to say, but they've got all these hero stories about, uh, getting avalanched here and there. Um, man, I don't know. It's, it's, it, it always surprises me when the the most vocal presenters at some of these things are the guys who've been in avalanches. I'd rather hear from the guys who are not in avalanches. <laughs> so, but yeah, I think you're on the right track. You just don't want to take a ride in an avalanche. It's just, it's a bad idea. Well, there's a zillion things that we could be talking about. The good news is you just submitted a book that we're all going to be able to read this coming November. So that takes a little bit of pressure off right now of having to cover like every significant topic. So let's though then talk about, you know, probably the most important topic imaginable skin track angles. Oh boy. (laughs) Now you've done it. (laughs) Now Um, you've done it, dude. uh, Another fun one. Maybe, maybe doesn't have quite the, uh, gravity of the you know airbag conversation but uh it's maybe no less heated of a conversation right and so yeah i can assure you (laughs) yeah people are going to take this way more seriously than airbags or book publishing or anything else this i mean i had a dude two years ago in a course it went on for like a day and a half him following me around going no 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 you know it's faster to go to okay so uh, I'll, I'll give you my take on it, and this is not my take. I would say this is, um, you know, because I think you've you've had a similar chat with um, uh, Greg Hill mm-hmm. and Cody Townsend, mm-hmm. and yeah. So there, I'm a little more. My main ski mentor uh, is Canadian, right? And this is a little more of the Canadian model. Like on my ski exam, I did it in Canada on Rogers Pass. Um, I did it through the American Mountain Guides Association, but our, our exam was in Canada with one of my examiners now lives up there full time and, you know, and uh, works up there. And at the beginning of the week, he said, you get three kick turns all week, more than that, and you fail. And by then I had like trained in Canada enough. I, I kind of knew that was the vibe, right? My point is this, if it, it, like, I just got back from three weeks touring in Canada had I spent the first week on my tallest riser, quote, going uphill and being efficient, like, you know, going faster, whatever you want to say, I would have been shattered the third week, right? So now imagine your guests that roll in from out of town and you've got doctors and lawyers and, you know, letter carriers and, uh, you know, the freaking dude who just came off the couch because his buddy told him to. If you put in a skin track that's 18 to 22% for the first three days of a week-long hut trip, I guarantee you that dude is shattered and he'll take day four or five off. Now, if you put in a skin track that's 12 to 14 degrees, you coach the guy a little bit, short stride, open your vents, let's relax, no kick turns. All of a sudden, this guy can do 4,000 feet a day and enjoy his vacation. He can talk. And I try to, I try consciously to never have my guests put up risers. And I try not to use risers myself. If I have to put up a riser, then I'm assuming the person at the back of the line is probably suffering, right? Because I get to do this quite a bit. I try to stay fit and stay off the donuts once in a while. 
And, you know, so if I'm suffering, he or she at the back is probably suffering pretty badly, right? And then, you know, my buddy up in Canada, Connor and Jansen, went out and built a, uh, put in like an 18-degree skin track and a 12-degree skin track. And then he compared his heart rate going, you know, up and down, up, up each track, right? And, you know, it sure looked like based on his experience that the low angle skin track at the same heart rate is way easier and um, way more efficient, right? And so I just encourage people to try it. Like I ski with total killers who are super fit. And so, yeah, a steeper skin track, they can probably tolerate that much better. But in general, you know, ask yourself, can you run a mile faster on a gradual slope or a steep slope, right? And could you run a marathon, you know, going up a steep slope or on a gradual slope, right? And, you know, so if you're going out for a, a, a hot lap before work, sure, throw out the risers, do whatever you want, sweat like a pig, awesome. Um, but in general, if you want, like, longevity, make it through an 8,000-foot day, I would say and I do this, I take out my phone. Like I just had a couple of guys doing a, you know, shadowing a a week in Canada. I take out my phone and my clinometer. I put it on the top sheet of my ski when I'm in their skin track and I'll tell them, Hey, you're going 18 degrees right now. Hey, you're going 22 degrees right now. And, um, you know, and I'll say the whole three weeks in Canada, I'm trying to think, Oh, I don't know. I did a couple kick turns in three weeks of working over there. You know, it just, you just don't need to, there's all these little tricks you can do, make a turn in a tree well, or hang onto a tree branch. Even you can like walk your skis around, but mainly it's like expert track setting and you put in a 14 degree skin track all week. Like your buddies in the back are going to be chatting happily. You get to slide your skis rather than lift them. You can, you know, you actually get a tiny bit of glide out of them on a 12 degree skin track. If you're doing 18 to 20, you're snowshoeing at that point, right? You're just picking your feet up and putting them down. And everyone knows snowshoeing sucks. <laughs> I'm joking. Oh, I love the snowshoers. I love, okay. Anyway. <laughs> um, <laughs> wow. So we've been talking about, you know, what's trending, what's hot, what's not. Uh, not trending, kick turns. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> kick turns are not trending. This is the thing, like you should master the kick turn and then you should never do it again. I love that's this. That's it right there. Dude, it's like that's the that's the the snow Yoda uh wisdom right there. Is master the kick turn and then never do it. That's the best thing. Yeah, I mean you come to Europe, you gotta do it, right? The mountains are freaking steep, the track's in, it's frozen solid. You know, but in a place with a s- soft snowpack, the Wasatch or you know, the Wasatch, I see the steepest freaking kick turn uh, or tracks with kick turns, and if you say anything, they're like, Oh yeah, well the terrain here just doesn't really lend itself to that. And, uh, I don't know. I just don't buy it. So I go for the 12 to 14 degree. I try not to do skin tracks and, you know, I've been loving those, uh, black diamond ATK bindings that really don't even have a riser on them really. So interesting. And just credit where credit is due. I do think it was a conversation with Eric Hjorlifsen where we first, where he first started really preaching, you know, the, uh, the low angle skin tracks. So uh, just want to give, you know, proper documentation here in terms of our conversations here on, you know, over at blister. And, uh, but yeah, I think, 
I think Greg and Cody would definitely be nodding uh, pretty vigorously with most of what you've said here. So, um, all right, yeah. I bow to all three of them. <laughs> they're right, they're wise, and that you know they'll be skiing until they're 84 years old and still going big because they're 12 degree skin tracks. There you go. I love it. Um, <laughs> where are you doing most of your guiding these days? Well, you know, like I said, we moved to um, Chamonix, and that's not to say I won't travel some and whatever. And so, um, you know, I was just in Canada, and I've got, uh, I'm going to go to Norway here in a little while. And I'm trying to only do two international trips this year and then offset them with carbon offsets and all this. Um, but um, I will be in Chamonix. I'll really be France, Italy, Switzerland a bunch this year. And, you know, I just did a trip to Canada and then I'll do a trip to Norway and I'll, I'll try to make that it for, you know, most of my air travel for the year. Um, and then, you know, like for guests or whatever, I, I book guests through, um, my website, but then also that, uh, awesome app called 57 hours. And so my calendar's up there. And so, you know, if somebody called up and said, uh, Oh, you know, meet me in, uh, Albania and let's go rock climbing. I'd be the first to jump on it. Cause it sounds cool. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'll be here mostly and, um, uh, you know, looking to stay pretty local and I mean, Chamonix is so blessed. You've got, I could be four hours from here. I could be clipping bolts on the coast on the Italian Riviera, or I could be, uh, you know, climbing 15 pitches right above town and, and back down to pick my kids up at school at four o'clock too. So, um, I'll try to keep it local and, uh, and do that. And so, hmm. and I asked where you're guiding, but in terms of what you're guiding right now, what does that breakdown look like for you? Like guiding for climbing versus guiding for, say, full-on schemo or ski mountaineering versus like, I don't know how to put it, but maybe like just straight up backcountry skiing that doesn't really involve the um, significant ski mountaineering ski alpinism component as much what does that ratio look like oh good question i would say i mean it's going to change now right um you know in colorado the reality is in midwinter you just don't get to do very much schemo um just with the snowpack we have and the weather and stuff like that um you know in canada really i, I just love going to canada and it's especially midwinter it's, it's just straight up ski touring i don't do i don't really do any mechanized ski guiding so um but you know here in chamonix i just um you know i just had a a fella come through town and his email his first line was oh i'm coming to chamonix i'd love to ski something rowdy like that's just the rep here um you know which is really cool but at the same time it's like think about steep skiing as if it were rock climbing right would you take a client you'd never met free soloing because that's kind of steep ski, you know? So you got to be a little bit careful with that stuff. Um, but I would say it'll be a lot more ski now that I'm in Chamonix. And it's just, there's so many cool peaks here. And the snowpack here is really lends itself more to it. You, you ski a lot more firm snow. That's just the reality of it. And, um, you know, there's a huge tradition of it here. And, and people come here and they, man, the mountains are steep and sharp and they want to get up on cool stuff. And, uh, uh, you know, I'm just looking at uh, Ben Tibbetts' website. He's a photographer and a mountain guide here for a cover shot for the book. And I mean, he's just got endless, awesome shots of people on ridge crests, you know, skis on their back and they're 
you know, booting up something rad to ski. And uh, that's just kind of the, the culture and the tradition here, you know, and steep skiing was really in large part born here in Chamonix and, um, not totally, but you know, the, it's certainly uh, popularized here. And, uh, so I'm, I'm imagining I'll do a bit more schemo and I think probably I'll guide. I'm probably on snow. I don't know, between 60 and, you know, in Colorado, maybe it was more towards 85 days a year or something like that. But then the climbing here is just so off the hook right in town. I mean, we live a four minute walk from, you know, a tram, I can take 5,000 feet up and it ends and there's rock climbing right there, you know? So in summer you go up, there's 20 degrees cooler and there's multi-pitch bolt routes and, um, you know, it's just such a cool venue. So I, you know, I bet you I'll do a bunch of multi-pitch like Alpine rock in the summer. Let's call it, I don't know, 30 days or something. And let's say I do 60 or 70 days of wintertime stuff maybe. And just depends how much I can tolerate traveling or whatever, but probably more schemo and a bit more Alpine climbing. And definitely in Colorado, I didn't grow up on glaciers. I would say that's my weakest discipline is, um, is like high alpine guiding. So I'm looking forward to improving my stuff there and, and easing into it. I don't want to dive in too quickly, but, um, it, you know, it'll be a cool challenge and get better at that. Yeah. Um, I think that's kind of a nice, maybe takeaway or summation of this conversation is just like proper humility, you know, for the places that we're talking about and traveling in, these mountains and mountains like Chamonix and, and, you know, there's a lot of gnarly spots around the world. And turns out you can also get into a whole lot of trouble in not particularly gnarly terrain as well. And this really brings me back. I mean, you mentioned 57 hours and I think I kind of talked about this a little bit. I don't think I put it exactly the way I'm about to here, but when I was talking to Greg Hill, about 57 hours. And I was curious, like, how was that working out for him? And, you know, 57 hours is kind of near and dear to our heart because it was started by a blister member, Victor, who came to us um, pretty early on and was asking kind of our thoughts about it. And I just really loved the idea in theory. And this is before it went live. This is before it was a thing. But now that it is live and now that we are seeing it being executed, um, 57 hours is another safety tool. That's really how I think about it, right? So we're talking about AviPax and should somebody travel with a balloon? Well, like if I'm, if and when I ever go ski in Chamonix, I am not doing that without a guide, full stop, right? And I think that that, whether it's an app like 57 hours or whether there are other tools or means to get hooked up with experienced guides in the right places. Turns out like I'd rather have that than an Avi pack. Yeah, I think you're totally, yeah. I mean, that's an aspect of 57 hours that, uh, you know, when you put it that way, it's interesting from a consumer's perspective or, or a potential guest's perspective you know she or he can look and compare guides and, and get recommendations on guides and things like that everything from kayaking to mountain biking to you know whatever i don't know if victor's doing paraponting yet he should because it's crazy over here everybody's doing it but um but yeah it's a it is it's a, you make a great point which is you know greg hills on the platform right it's so cool and i remember meeting victor the same thing when he was just it was an idea and i met this kooky croatian dude who had this idea i was like <laughs> oh yeah whatever that sounds like it might work and then a year later i met him again he's like oh yeah it's, it's 
it's going to be live. Do you want the beta version? And that's when I got involved with them. Um, but yeah, it's an awesome way to, uh, to compare guides and get recommendations and do things like that. And you can see the guides credentials right there on the pages and, um, see what kind of trips they book if they do, you know, like kind of set pieces or they just do everything custom or whatever. But 57 hours has totally transformed, um, you know, the way I do business in that it streamlines so much of the back end stuff that I think probably I, like many mountain guides, uh, am not that good at. And, um, you know, I tell a funny story about, uh, being out for a half day with some guests in the morning and I see, you know, I get a text on my phone and I kind of glance at it at one of the blaze and this person is trying to book me through 57 hours for that afternoon. And yeah, I put the phone away, climb another pitch and then I'm up there and then I take the phone out and I open the app and sure enough, they're trying to book me and I hit, yes, I can work with them and, you know, start time and this and that. And I shoot them a quick note. I'll call you at one o'clock and boom, I booked a, in about four minutes before clients ever saw me take out my phone. I booked a, uh, an afternoon and put the phone away and got back to, you know, hanging out and having a good time and whatnot. And, um, it's just been a cool thing to watch Victor and his crew. And now I've gotten to be buddies with Victor's wife, Carmen, and they came on a Canada trip last year. And I've met some of the folks from Croatia and I'm going to, I hope, and I'm going to go over there and go climbing with, um, one of the office guys in Zagreb, Paritza, uh, this coming summer. And he's probably, uh, you know, uh, it's psyched to show me around a little bit cause it's got so much good rock in uh, Croatia. But, um, yeah, the 57 hours thing is awesome. And there's a ton of these kind of upstart, you know, I still get queries about trying to work together and book trips and this and that. And I don't know, I've just like fallen in with Victor and that crew and, and the app is super responsive and they've, they, uh, you know, they really tune it up. Anything you suggest to them, they incorporate. And so that's been really helpful, but yeah, as a risk management tool, it's awesome. Cause you don't have to go into a place blind. You can get a recommendation from a guide in your little home area, whatever for a guide and wherever you're going to Cortina or Innsbruck or wherever Patagonia, you know, you can book a guide that way. It's pretty cool. It's been cool. Well, Rob, this has been a really fun conversation. People should check out and can check out now the mountain guide manual. And we would particularly recommend that to any climbers out there, anybody uh, traveling in the Alpine, anybody doing any amount of ski mountaineering, um, the ski guide manual, this we suspect is going to be released in November of this year. I have that right? I think so. Yeah. Barring some sort of mishap. We'll see. The editors have it now, so hopefully they like it. And yeah, but I think it's November. And then as we've just been saying, people can find you and connect with you on 57 hours. Is there another best way for people to get in touch with you? Yeah, my little business is Veta Mountain Guides, V-E-T-T-A, just means summit in Italian. V is in Victor, Veta Mountain Guides with two T's. And uh, that's my website, and they can shoot me a note there. I'm on 57 Hours. Um, I'm on Facebook as well. Um, Instagram under Veta MTN Guides, Veta Mountain Guides. Um, yeah, I don't know, whatever. They can find me however. I'm, I'm easy to track down. And uh, <laughs> yeah, the book's out there. The Mountain Guide Manual's out there. Chauvin and I have, I, don't, I think we've sold maybe 6,000 copies right now. Um, yeah, so it's moving along. And uh, yeah, it's awesome talking to you. And when you do get around to coming to Chamonix, man, uh, look me up. We'll go climbing. I would love that. Um, yeah, still on the list. Um, kind of hard to believe, but I've, I've, uh, I've not been there yet. So, oh, no uh, way. 
All right. Yeah. Well, you got it coming. You'll be fine. <laughs> hey, thanks so much for the time and for a good conversation and uh, look forward to doing it again down the line. Absolutely, man. I'd be uh, psyched to chat anytime and I'll look forward to meeting you over here at some point and uh, or seeing you at OR or one of these shows when I'm back in the States or something. Awesome. Well, hey, Rob, thanks. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks, buddy. That's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. Thanks to Rob for the conversation. Thanks to Luke Alley for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. If you are enjoying these conversations, we'd invite you to subscribe to the Blister Podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a nice little rating or review in iTunes and be sure to tell your friends about the show. Now, please go take good care out there and we will talk to you again next week.